Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, help us now as we come to your word. There are things that we need to see and there are things that we need to hear from your word that are not knowable and discernible to mankind unless your spirit impart such truths to us and so what we do not know and yet need teach us as paul wrote to the corinthians these things are spiritually discerned and so holy spirit help us teach us not only are we ignorant people this morning father in need of truth apart from you there is no truth but we are also Needy people who are paupers and possess nothing. Outside of all that you give to us, we are hungry, naked, fearful in a spiritual sense, but even in a physical sense, all that we have comes from your hand. Cause us to realize that. Cause us to realize that you are the source of all things and that all of our needs are met in and from you. Not in our own strength and not by any strength of any other man. And so what we do not have, we pray that you would give us. Because you best know our needs. This morning as we consider and diagnose, Father, our own hearts... There are things that are lacking in what we should be. And we have tried, all of us, in many ways, at many times, to reform ourselves, to change ourselves, and to be something that we desire to be. And yet we find that in our own strength we are empty and have nothing to give. We are incapable people. Apart from your power and your work in us, every single one of us are. And so the thing that we desire to be, the thing that we need to be, and that is to be like Jesus, we know we are not. And we humbly ask that you would make us what we should be so that you receive all honor from beginning to finish for all the good that is done. May Christ be seen in us is our ultimate goal in prayer, Father. And so inform us, supply us, and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, I want to begin in verse 5 this morning. Go down through verse 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
for this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that for the purpose of that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Last week we began examining our hearts and our lives as members of this local church, this body of believers, in order that we would become the kind of fellow Christian, brother, sister, church member, that lives a life thriving in health, spiritual well-being. And we saw last week from the beginning of this particular chapter that that is done through one overarching means, and that is the grace of humility. That we would be humbled, that we would have less of us and more of Christ, less of us and more of each other, that drives everything about our life. And that, that is, as we're diagnosing our spiritual health, just like we would our physical health, we go through the steps, and what about this area of my life? And what about that area of my life? And we, we come and we say, what about my spiritual health? Well, how are we walking in humility with the Lord? That humility then leads to a second mark, a second test, a second diagnostic, This morning that prepares us for a healthy life within the church of Jesus Christ. And that mark is seen in the title of the sermon this morning. What is a healthy church member? A healthy church member is one who is a worshiping recipient of the grace and salvation of our Savior. Worship. You see, worship and humility are so closely tied together that Paul includes both of those as the major themes of this portion of Philippians chapter 2. Because having commanded us to be humble in our minds, humble in life, in verses 1 through 4, in verses 5 through 8, the Apostle Paul gives us what that looks like in the life of Jesus Christ. But humility for humility's sake is not the end. To be humble just to be humble is not Paul's goal. To be humble that you might worship, however, is the goal. It is the purpose for which all things exist. It is the purpose for which Christ sustains all things. That we would be healthy because we are humble people who have recognized that we ought also to be worshiping people. And so to that end, in these verses, the Apostle Paul gives us two aspirations that are on his mind. 
There is, first of all, an aspiration to imitation in verses 5 through 8. And secondly, there is an aspiration to exaltation in verses 9 through 11. And I want you to look at those with me this morning. Let's begin by looking at an aspiration to imitation. Look at verse 5. Paul commands, he does not suggest, but rather commands, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also found in Christ Jesus. There is not only the command, but there is the place to look in order to understand the command. Isn't that kind of the Lord? That he doesn't just say, hey, listen, have this attitude in yourselves and you're left wondering, man, I wonder what the attitude is. He said, here's the attitude that you're to have. It is the very attitude modeled by Jesus Christ. Not only the truth of what the attitude is, but what it looks like by way of application. How kind of the Lord that he would condescend to us to say, hey, I'm going to I'm not just going to give you a a sterile command. I'm going to give you all the tools that you need to fulfill that. And it is fulfilled in Christ. And so there is this command that ought to cause us to be inspired to imitate Jesus Christ. But let me begin by asking you a question like, like any good doctor does when you go in. How are you feeling? How is this? How is that? How's the other? My question to you this morning is this. Have you ever or do you ever stop and ponder how fallen you are? Have you ever stopped to to just think about for a moment how sinful we all are? Every single one of us beginning with myself. Who will, uh, you know, arm wrestle every one of you for Paul's title, Chief of Sinners? You ever stop to think about that? Do you? I hope that, that we all do. Because in understanding how fallen we are, we can appreciate all the more what Christ has done. Brothers and sisters, When you consider your fallenness, when you consider your sinfulness, you need to remember this, that we are all, every single one of us, so fallen that even our pursuit of humility that Paul commands in the first four verses can become pride. Our humility and pursuit of humility can become sin. That's how fallen I am. That's how fallen you are. Isaiah says it this way, that our righteousness is filthy rags. Your best attempt at pleasing God can become sin in and of itself because you are not rightly focused and aligned in pursuing that thing. Our most noble endeavors are still susceptible to the worst of outcomes. The best that you can possibly do can still end up in an absolute train wreck and dumpster fire. John Bunyan, the Puritan, once remarked this. There is enough sin in my best prayer to send the whole world to hell. 
Think about that. There is enough sin in my best prayer to send the entire world to hell. Bunyan understood how fallen he was. Bunyan certainly did not set out to sin, and he is certainly not applauding his sin. He's just saying, that's how fallen I am. That in my own strength, in my own abilities, if I'm trying this on my own and and for my own benefit, then it is so filled with sin that even the best prayer that I could offer would send the whole world to hell. So I have a follow-up question for you. One not of diagnosis, but one of prescription. How will you prevent that then from happening? How will you circumvent your fallenness? How do we keep our fallenness in check? How do we keep our very best efforts from becoming sinful? Because we could all, brothers and sisters, and and I say this pastorally, we could all, out of great concern and love for our church, so start pursuing humility, but do it in our own strength that we end up hating each other in the process because our humility becomes false humility, man-centered humility focused on us rather than on Christ. Our individual health becomes our collective health as a church. And so we must ask the question, how do I in my life, how do you in your life prevent your most noble aspirations from becoming the very sin that you hate? Well, there's an answer for that in this text. Every one of us here this morning, and I know you, and I love you. And I know the Lord loves you, and I know you love the Lord. So many of you. And I know that you desire the best for one another. And that that is so extremely encouraging to my heart. To be able to shepherd a church that genuinely has one another's care and one another's best at heart. I've even had reports this week of how you have loved and served each other. And it's so touching. And so I know that your concern is, Brian, I don't want to go there. I don't want my my good to be used and twisted into some kind of sinful, self-centered action. So so how do I do these things without it becoming a source of pride, a, a source of legalism, a source of sin? How do I... Carry this out in my life. And the answer is this. In absolute and devoted focus on the person of Jesus. So much so that you don't see anybody else. Though you may be acting toward them, you are focused on Christ. Loving Christ. Worshiping Christ. And so with that Understanding that that we have a call to humility. Understanding that that we are called to do that. Called to be healthy in that way. Let us look then at the, the antidote for that going off the rails. It begins in verse 5. Look in verse 5 again with me. Let's read the first phrase. Have this attitude In yourselves. 
Read it again. Look at your Bibles. Read it again. Have this attitude in yourselves. This command. Imperative. Read it again. Have this attitude in yourselves. We could translate it another way by saying it this way. All of you, because it's emphatic. All of you have this mind in yourselves. You see, it's a plural thing. Paul's not saying the pastor and the elders, the spiritually mature in the church, they are to have this attitude. He says, all of you must have this attitude in yourselves. How do we as a church promote and protect a healthy spiritual life together corporately? <coughs> because obviously that, that is it. All of you, he's speaking to the whole, but the whole is made up of individuals, isn't it? Every one of you in yourselves, so that collectively as a whole, you have the mind of Jesus. The psalmist writes in Psalm 133, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for the brothers to dwell together in unity. Now here's what none of us like. None of us like all of the syrupy and yet meaningless talk about unity that floats around in the world today. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? Be unified, be unified. Let's have unity, 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 unity. And you know what they lack? Any basis for unity. They're not unified around anything. But Paul here says there is something to be unified around. And is that every single one of us, as different as we are, has the same mind. And it's the mind set on Jesus. We are so different in this church. And yet I'm encouraged because we're so unified. We're all here for one reason. Jesus Christ. That Christ would be known. That Christ would be heralded. You know, let's look around for a minute. Look around at our church. It's glorious. We've got people from different countries. We've got people from different religious backgrounds that God has saved us out of, whether it was no background at all, or maybe it was Catholicism, or maybe it was some other thing. But, but God has saved us all and brought us here, where we love the Word of God and we love sound doctrine and where we love... Christ, we speak different languages, at least three different languages spoken fluently among those of you sitting here this morning, different cultures, but how wonderful is it that we have one mind and all of that means nothing when we have one mind in ourselves. Every single one of us focused on the, the same thing. 
we're not divided by superficial things. We are united by one, one consequential thing, and that is Christ. It's divine groupthink. I was teaching a class one time to years ago to some men talking about leadership in the church and why it's so important. We were going through the confession of faith and we're, we're going through it. And one guy raises his hand in the back. He says, don't you think that this promotes groupthink? Yes, it does. And praise God for it. To be of one mind. Paul says, have this one mind in yourselves. That Christ would be all to you. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody? I'm sure that you had. A conversation with somebody who you began to talk to. And you found such a commonality and love for the Lord. That you talked and you look down at your watch and it's like, oh boy, I'm late for dinner. I'm late for my next appointment. I'm late for whatever. Because there was such a, a sweetness, like, like a cool breeze on a hot summer day. There was a sweetness of unity of mind with that person. Like a warm blanket on a cold winter day, curled up by the fire, it was comforting and, and encouraging to you because of the oneness of mind. Like a kind word of encouragement from the friend in the midst of a trial, that's what type of, of, of unity, being of one mind on Christ, will bring. And if you start out with unity as your goal, you'll never get there. But if you start out with Christ as your goal, you'll always get there. Unity for unity's sake is not unity. Christ alone can bring unity. So Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, yes, individually, but also corporately when it's that way individually. And it is the mind of Christ built upon one person. And you say, Brian, what does this have to do with worship? Well, I just want to quickly take you back to John's gospel. So go to John chapter 17. Paul says we are to have the mind of Christ. All of us, and that in having the mind of Christ, we will be led into a, a oneness of spirit, a oneness of unity that, that we all dwell in so richly that our health is increased. And so we might then ask, then what is the mind that Jesus Christ had? And we find it in John chapter 17. Let's look at verse 1. What did Jesus think? What was the mind of Christ? Jesus spoke these things and lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said this, Father, the hour has come. The hour is here. That's the fact. Now, what's the request? Look at the next phrase. Glorify your son. What was Jesus' mind? Jesus' mind was to be glorified. Now, how did Jesus accomplish the, 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 the credentials in order to be glorified? 
Verse 2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Do you see it? What Jesus did was for the purpose of being glorified with his Father. What Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, rehearsed for us the work that Jesus finished. He humbled himself and became obedient, taking on our humanity to the point that he died a death for us in our place, even death on the cross. Why did he do that? Exactly what he prayed in John 17. That he might be glorified. Even in Christ's work, he did it for the purpose of being glorified. Now you might say, I thought he did it for me. Humble yourselves to receive this truth, brothers and sisters. He did it for him. Because in the salvation of sinners, God is most glorified. We are not the end for which Christ died. We are the means to his glorification by saving us. And so Paul says, have the mind in yourselves. What is the mind, Paul? The same mind that Jesus had. What was Jesus' mind, Paul? Humbling himself for service and sacrifice that would ultimately lead to worship. Seeing nothing else, having nothing else in front of them, distracted by nothing else. Christ came and he lived and he died with a singular purpose in mind, didn't he? Aren't you glad Jesus wasn't distracted? Aren't you glad Jesus didn't get, you know, let off the rails one direction or the other on on secondary issues? From eternity past, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension, Jesus was focused on one thing, accomplishing the work the Father gave him to do. And he never varied. So too should be our worship, because if that was Christ's mind, it ought to be our mind. Laser focused on the glory and the worth of a Savior who would come and do these things. How do you keep your humility from becoming pride? The mind of Christ. That Christ would be glorified. How do we keep our service from becoming legalism and a list of things that we have to do by a mind focused on Christ, out of love for Christ, genuine awe of Jesus Christ? That's how we do it. That is what worship is. It is that soul focus upon him. And Paul says, adopt this mind among all of you. The mind of Jesus, which through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, is so doing for the purpose of being worshipped. Verse 3. 
And so I'm still left asking the question, is this possible for us? Is it possible for me? Can I even do that? After all, I'm still reminded that as glorious as all those things that we've just been thinking about, it's still just us sitting here this morning. Good, bad, and ugly. Here we are. With all the proclivities to sin and temptation. On the one hand and on the other hand, a glorious Savior. Can we do it? There still seems to be... Brian, so many ways that that I could drift or fracture into sin. So many personal preferences that that, that among ourselves could derail us. So much pride that, that I could be easily offended. Well, thankfully, this is not the end of Paul's instruction for us. Just simply saying to do it. Have this mind. Think this way. No, he gives us so much more. He gives us, as it were, a hymn. You see, the people way smarter than I am, the the scholars who study these things and write the commentaries, say that Ephesians, or I'm sorry, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is actually a hymn. One sung by the early church. Now please, those of you musically inclined, set this to music for us. It's a hymn, it's, a, it's an exaltation of who Christ is. So Paul, in very unpaul-like fashion, you see, Paul normally explains and then commands, but here in this case, Paul commands and then explains. He says, have the mind of Christ in you. Yeah, but Paul, how do I reconcile that? How do I do that and yet not fall back into to, to sin that this goes off the rails in some way? He says, secondly, there must be an aspiration not only to imitate Christ, but to exalt Christ. That's how you don't go off the rails. That Christ be honored. That Christ be exalted. That I be taken out of the picture. There's an exaltation that empowers us to carry out imitation. Look at verse 9. This is one of Paul's. Hear me. Air quotes here. Faults. You see, Paul has, a, Paul has a tendency, and Paul has a, a pattern that you can follow throughout all of his letters. You find it in Romans chapter 11. Paul can only talk about Jesus for so long before breaking out into a hymn. But Paul, Paul has a very limited ability to talk about Christ for very long without devolving, tongue-in-cheek, into worship. Everything else fades when Paul starts to talk about Jesus. And Paul turns that corner and it begins to change in verse 9. Paul says, for this reason, Christ did all of these things. For this reason, he's commanded and he starts teaching and now he goes to worshiping. Hey, Philippian church, here's how you keep it right. Here's how you stay healthy. Worship. 
worship. He can't help himself have this mind because this mind ends up looking up to Christ and his glory that he rightly sought. It ends with our bowing the knee and devoting all of who we are to Christ. Fully humbled, no thought of ourselves, locked in on Christ, we worship for this reason God has highly exalted him. Now, when God highly exalts someone, what does that say to you? They're right. Doesn't it? Does God ever exalt, let alone highly exalt, something that's eh, mediocre? Or even wrong? Oh, no. Always what is perfect. And so, for this reason, because of Christ's perfect life, because of His perfect death, because of His perfect resurrection, God has also highly exalted Him. He's answered the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, hasn't He? Father, glorify me now with Yourself. Okay, Son. You have done what I gave You to do. Be exalted. Be glorified. Paul goes on. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him, Jesus, the name which is above every name. You see, John chapter 3, verse 30, you guys remember that. It wasn't that long ago. Where John says of Jesus, he must increase and I must Decrease. You know, it's really not hard. The application is hard, but the truth isn't hard. Because he has a name above every name. We live like we're trying to give Jesus the name. You know, it's just so hard and I'm just trying. No, the name's there. The, the issue becomes we're not worshiping like we should. And worship includes humility. Humility. That is more of Christ, more of others, less of us. Christ becomes the center of exalting. He already has the name that's above every name. Nothing higher, nothing better, nothing sweeter, nothing more joyous than Jesus. Nothing more powerful, nothing more saving. Christ, 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 everything belongs at the feet of Jesus. Now, Notice verse 10. Here's the purpose statement Paul gives for that. That every knee will bow. Every one of us. And you see, this is a picture of worship. The word most commonly used throughout the Old Testament for worship had not so much to do with the words that you said, but the posture that you assumed. And it is a posture of face down, prostrate before the Lord. That's what worship is. It is a falling down, face down to the ground, in awe, in wonder, in praise, in gratitude for who Christ is. For what he has done. God highly exalted him. Why? So that every knee would bow, that we would fall to our faces. Do you remember how the Apostle John meets the risen Jesus? How does he meet him? 
and revelation. I fell as a dead man. John knew Jesus here on earth, didn't he? He knew him in his humanity. He walked with Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And yet when John meets the exalted Christ, he doesn't recline upon his bosom. He falls at his feet. And he proclaims the worthiness of Jesus. And and for the next 21 chapters, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation paints a picture of the Lamb, victorious, glorious, risen, and conquering. And that is what Paul is calling us to. Christ has been highly exalted, rightly glorified by his Father in response to his work and his own request. It is what he desired. Why? So that you and I would fall at his feet oblivious to everything else. That Christ would be made much of in our life. That Christ would be the satisfying drink of the water of life that we desperately need. The bread of life. The good shepherd who shepherds our soul. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Precious Jesus For this reason, God also exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, the very mention of Jesus, every knee will bow. And notice, in following what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, every tongue is going to confess too. With a heart one believes, with a mouth one confesses. And here the knee is bowed in belief and the tongue joyfully confesses, for the believer at least, that Jesus is Lord. This will not be joyfully confessed, though it will be confessed by unbelievers. You will admit Jesus is Lord and you will say that it is right and glorious to the Father for His plan and for His work and to the Son for accomplishment. Whether you want to or not, you will because it's true. But for the believer, we will fall in worship and confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ for the glorification of the Father and the Son. Because it's a glory they've always had, Jesus says in John 17. Before the world was, we shared this glory. And so from glory to glory, we will bow. We aspire to bow to Jesus with an unobstructed view of Jesus Christ that we might worship. Say, Brian, how does that help me in my spiritual health? How does that cause me to grow? How does that help our church? Because worship is the antidote to every sin. When you are worshiping the risen Christ, when you are bowing a knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and His glory, 
Everything else fades away. Selfishness, pride, laziness, everything fades when you see the glory of the risen Christ. Our spiritual health is equal to our worship. Our worship is the fuel and it is the safeguard of all that we do. When we love Jesus so much, we'll love what Jesus loves. What does Jesus love? Jesus loves to be glorified. And if Jesus loves to be glorified, we will want to glorify him with every part of our being. We will so desire him that everything else is like the most tasteless thing in the world to us. Because we've tasted what is good and true and beautiful and God-honoring. And there's life there. Have you ever been in a situation where you were forced to quit eating something that you perhaps thought you loved and grown addicted to and you get away from it? Usually something unhealthy. (laughs) And after a period of time of not having that thing, you come back to it and realize all of a sudden, oh, that's terrible. How did I ever eat that? How did I ever drink that? Dr. Pepper. It's so sweet. Ugh. Because you've tasted something better. When we worship Christ, when we cut out all the the other things, we'll begin to lose their taste. Out of love for the one who is worthy. We will evangelize with the purest of motives. You know why? You know what evangelism is? Evangelism is not just trying to get sinners through the gates of heaven. Evangelism is wanting to fill the choir loft with sinners who've become saints to sing Jesus' praise for all eternity. You'll want more people in heaven with you to sing the praise of Jesus when you realize how worthy Jesus is. You'll evangelize without fear. Not, but yeah, you may love the person you're evangelizing, but you love Jesus even more than them. And heaven, oh, there's the, recently the Gettys wrote a song, and, and, and there's a line in there that says, "Oh, that more would gain the prize, so that they would sing, that Christ would have more members of the heavenly choir to sing." That's what we want. More people converted for the glory of Jesus Christ will quarrel with each other less when Jesus Christ is the prize. We'll be less set on my way when we realize there's really only one way. The way of Christ. Our worship dictates our health 
We start putting the junk food back in the diet and things go really bad really fast. You start adding yourself back into your life. There will be no humility. There will be no service. There will be no submitting to one another in love. But when we love Jesus and when we worship Jesus, oh, everything else is, well, does it even exist? I'd like to interview the Apostle John. Say, John, let me ask you a series of questions, if you don't mind. You were on the Isle of Patmos, were you not? Yes, I was. Why were you on the Isle of Patmos, John? Well, you see, I'd been boiled in oil, and that didn't work. So they, 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 they you know, cast me off, relegated me to this deserted Have you ever seen a picture of the Isle of Patmos? Go look it up. Good luck farming there. Good luck surviving. It's rock. But he's exiled to the Isle of Patmos. John, is that a comfortable place? You know, I don't really remember. John, did they have a great HEB where there was plenty of food to eat? Don't recall. John, what about the other prisoners who were there on that penal colony island? Were you worried about the murderers coming for you in your sleep? Never thought about it. All I could see. All I could see and think about was this lamb who'd been slain and been raised from the dead. Who though he bled, his garments were white. Whose eyes were like fire. Whose feet were like immovable brass. That's all I can remember. That's all I can think about was this Jesus whom I met on the island of Patmos. John, did you struggle with self-pity, self-love, selfishness, bitterness at the Roman government for what they did to you? Never thought about it. All I could see was Jesus. John, were you afraid that they were going to come for you and eventually crucify you on the island of Patmos? Never really thought about it. Didn't matter. I was going to keep writing and preaching Jesus until he brought me home. Glorifying Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, how imperative it is to our health. Do you see how the worship of the risen lamb becomes the antidote to so many ill things in our lives? You see, Philippians, while it's the most positive of Paul's letters, still had its problems. He had Yodia and Syntyche who couldn't get along. And Paul says, listen, you guys have to be of one mind. How do we become of one mind? Look up. Look up. We all remember as kids, or maybe as parents, when you have more than one child and they begin to fight with each other. My sister and I used to quarrel in the back. See, I know you can't believe that. 
But we used to curl in the back seat, you know, of the car going on a trip or whatever. And my parents would sit something in between and say, now here's the barrier. Don't cross. You stay on your side. You stay on your side. Right? Our barrier to that kind of quarreling, as Paul is trying to teach the Philippians, is not a physical barrier. It's a spiritual barrier. You look up. You can't see what's on either side of you. There will be unity. When we look to Jesus, when we're in awe of who he is. I'm not really sure how to walk down that road, Brian. What are the practical steps? First of all, you have to know him. You have to know who he is, not only intellectually, but by faith as Savior. There's no worship of Christ without a relationship with Christ, first of all, a saving relationship. Having trusted him to forgive your sins, you can then look to him to know his character, to read about him in in John's gospel, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read about it all throughout and, and, and saturate your mind in who he is and what he's done. To remember who you are. You remember that's how I started. How fallen are you? And then to think about who he is. And to think about where he's brought you from to where you are today. That's how you start. Sing the Christ at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He rules all to the glory of God the Father. This is the core of our health. This is the core of our unity. Everything else takes care of itself. As the hymn writer said, the things of earth grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and his grace. May it be true for us. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your divine plan. That not only saves us, but transforms us into the worshiping people we are created to be. And oh, how worship as it was in the garden. How that worship is the antidote to our sin. Having the mind of Christ, the mind that rightly sought glory for what he has done in washing us from our sins. That we might focus on him and be kept from sin. So may that mind be mine, Lord, this morning. And may it be the mind of everyone here so saturated in Christ that everything else falls into its rightful place. Please make it so, Lord. There are so many temptations, so many idols that seek to claim our worship, but may our worship be reserved for Christ. And may your people benefit accordingly. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.